So good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here. I know a lot of you, some of you we're still getting to know. We've been a part of Northview now for four years, but at least a couple of those have been in COVID. So we haven't all had as much opportunity to get to know each other as we would like. So my name is Allison, as you know, I'm ordained with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Newfoundland and Labrador, and they graciously let me come here and live in Peterborough. So uh, we're, we're very much enjoying Peterborough and also Northview Church, so thank you for having me today. One of the things that I've observed over a number of years of pastoral ministry and also just kind of sitting in the pew is that there are certain parts of the Bible that we tend to avoid sometimes. Have you noticed that? Maybe a little bit. There are certain passages of scripture or maybe certain books of the Bible that we just tend to avoid. And I think there's a good reason for that. I think there are some parts of scripture that may be a little bit confusing or perhaps complicated, or maybe it seems violent, and so we just think, well, I'll, I'll stick with the good stuff, all the, the lovey, gushy stuff. No, I'm just kidding. But we do, we tend to avoid certain parts of the Bible, and a part of the Bible called the prophets is one of those areas of scripture. So I thought, you know, I'm not one to shy away from a challenge, so maybe let's do that. I thought, the prophets have some really great lessons for us as followers of Jesus. And we think, you know, none of that is relevant to our lives, but actually there's so much of that material that is very relevant to us as followers of Jesus. So why is this part of scripture important? Well, there's this period of time in scripture, and it's the period of time prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ. It's a period of time where God speaks to his people through prophets. These are people who are tasked with delivering a specific message to a specific group of people. God's people had kings at the time to govern them. They had a religious system with priests to guide them spiritually. But there were times in which actually both of those systems were corrupt. The governing leaders had a tendency on occasion to do evil, and even the religious leaders on occasion had the tendency to do evil. So because of this, God raises up prophets, people tasked with delivering a specific message. And typically this message is to challenge them, to call out their sins, and to remind them of who they are and their covenant commitments. So Isaiah is one of these prophets. And so Isaiah actually is one of the most profound prophets because he delivers these incredible prophecies about Jesus Christ. And this is centuries before Jesus arrives on the scene on earth. So keep in mind now that when we're reading through the Bible, there are certain parts, specifically in the Old Testament, that don't always immediately make sense to us. Have you ever read something in the Bible and you're like, I have no idea what that means? Anybody? Anyone? Yeah, okay, I see that, I see that hand. <laughs> but often it's because this highly figurative language is used. There's a lot of images that are used, and I always use this example in one of my classes. I say, if you were driving down the road and you saw the golden arches, what would you think that meant? Anybody? Oh, you all know. You all know. But if you went back a couple hundred years ago and you showed someone the golden arches, they'd be like, it's a yellow M. 
they would have no idea that it means those perfectly salty fries or the Big Mac or the McNuggets. They would have no idea what that means. So in the same way, there are all of these images in Scripture that at the time, the people would have automatically known what that meant. But we read those images and it doesn't always resonate with us in the same way. So sometimes we have to do a little bit of extra legwork to try to figure out, well, what exactly is happening here? One of the other things that we should keep in mind when we read the prophets is that there are some general themes that kind of keep cropping up over and over in the prophets. And it's almost as if God is trying to send the same message over and over and over. It's almost as if God's people have a hard time listening sometimes. Now, we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? No. But, you know, the funny thing is that in Scripture, God is often described as a father, and sometimes even as a mother. But here's the thing. Are you even really a parent if you don't have to repeat yourself? So it makes sense. It makes sense that God has to give the same message. But these same messages in the prophets are threefold. It's this. You've sinned, and judgment is coming, but there's hope. So if you read through the prophets, you will see those three things over and over. You've sinned, judgment is coming, but there's hope. So today, as we read a little tiny part of the book of Isaiah. We're going to keep those three things in mind because we're going to see them even in a very small part of Isaiah chapter 1. So I'm reading from the NASB. If you have a phone, you can look it up. If you have a, a real Bible with paper pages, do people still have those anymore? Yes? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, you can follow along with me or you can just listen along. It says this, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful people, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Your whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation, overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. 
So now that you're all thoroughly encouraged with that, I'll just start with a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you still speak to us through your word, and you've shown us that it is living and active. And Lord, I pray today that as we look into this passage of scripture, you would open our ears to hear, but more importantly, open our hearts as well. All this we ask in your name. Amen. So, I just want to give you a little bit of context, and you know, just spoiler alert, yeah, this starts off a little bit kind of not really pleasant, but it's okay, we'll, 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 we'll get there. But just to give you some context about what is happening at this time, this passage of scripture is set during a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. The Assyrians are rising as a superpower, and Israel's kind of cowering in the corner, wondering what's going to happen. They're living in fear. And in the year 701 BC, the Assyrians lay siege to Jerusalem, and they surround it on every side. And eventually, they are responsible for the invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel and the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. So God's people at this time would have certainly been in a position where they feel discouraged and disheartened as it relates to their geopolitical position, but also as it relates to their spiritual condition as well. So this helps set the stage for what happens. Verse 2 begins with this description, and it's actually uh, imagery or, or, or a scene of a court. So if any of you have ever had opportunity to be in court, you know that there are a couple of common things, right? There's a judge, and there are witnesses, and there are charges being made, and, and all of these things are common to that kind of scene. And so in verse 2, we have this description of a court where the witnesses are called, and the charges are laid, and then later in the chapter, the sentence is given. Verse 2 says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. The heavens and the earth are the witnesses in God's court. And it seems that all of creation are the perpetual witnesses to what happens here on earth. And therefore, all of creation can affirm God's divine accusations of his people. So why does creation need to pay attention at all? Well, verse 2 tells us it's because the Lord speaks. The Lord himself is spoken, and it's to him that all of creation has to submit to him. So what are the charges? I mean, if God's people are, are uh, in a court kind of environment, what are the charges that are being made against them? Well, the next few verses tell us that. They indicate that in a very general sense, Israel's rebellion against the Lord is the very root of the calamity that they're now experiences. It explains with this analogy of animals. Any of you ever seen the movie Shrek? Donkey! Get out of my swamp! It's a little bit like that. So there's these analogies. The analogy is given of an ox and a donkey, or if you prefer the King James, I'll, I'm just going to leave that with you. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel doesn't know. My people do not understand. Have you ever heard the expression, a dumb ox? Or, or someone's as dumb as an ox? You heard that? Yeah? Now, 
Someone might be coming to mind, but I'm just going to ask you to keep that to yourself. I don't want to get anyone in trouble here today. <laughs> so, Israel is, is being highlighted here, and God's complaint against his people is being highlighted. It's as if the ox and the donkey are smart enough to know their owner. They're smart enough to know where, they, where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing and when they need to eat. They know their master. They know their master's manger. In other words, well, it's time to eat. I'm going to go to the manger. But the comparison here is that Israel is not even as smart as this animal who cannot even respond appropriately to what God has called them to. They've turned against God. They've revolted against God. And it's an insult to God. They have given so little recognition to the majesty of their creator and of their Lord. They have forgotten their indebtedness to God. They go their own way and they revolt and it doesn't make sense. Perhaps you've known people who've turned their backs on the Lord or turned their backs on the gospel, and what we learn here is that it actually doesn't make sense. We stop and we think, well, I can't figure it out. Well, no, because it doesn't make sense that Israel would turn their backs on the Lord. Verse 4 moves on to address the sinful nation. Now, this is one of those themes that crops up in other ancient literature as well. And there's this idea that the rise and fall of nations is a result of sinfulness. The, the concept is carried out in other uh, literature, and it, and it holds over in the Old Testament as well. And so there's this sense that when God's people abandon justice, when they commit atrocities, when their leaders become corrupt, when their people forsake righteousness, the destruction that they experience is understood in the Old Testament as being a result of divine retribution. And so as a little aside, that concept does not carry over into the New Testament in the same way, but in the Old Testament, we see how sinfulness results in the rise and fall of nations. So their national decline is their own fault. The spiritual decline, it isn't just a matter of making mistakes or, or committing a wrong here and there or messing up once in a while. It is a case of sustained rejection of the Lord. But yet the prophet's language here indicates the weight of sinfulness. God's people carry the weight of their guilt and of their shame. Now, have any of you ever done something where your conscience just won't let you rest because you carry that weight, you carry the guilt with you, and you continue to feel it until you make it right? So God's people are feeling that weight, and the weight of sin is unbearable. In the next couple of verses, there's an analogy given, and it's sort of like an allegory of the human body. And it's a physical body that's in pretty rough shape, actually. It's, it doesn't look good. The head is sick, and the heart is faint, and there's nothing sound left in the whole body, it says. There's only bruises and welts and, and raw wounds, and none of the wounds are even bandaged up. It's just gaping and bleeding and oozing all over the place. It's, it's awful. 
but even though they've gotten themselves into the mess that they're in, they still continue on in their rejection of the Lord. It's entirely irrational. So this imagery of a beaten body relates to the invasion and how Jerusalem has been attacked and is barely left standing. And the punishment that God's people were experiencing through this foreign adversary, through this superpower, is a direct result of their own sin and because they've turned their backs on the Lord. So it moves on now to painting a bleak picture. If you can just imagine the scene. The city is burned. The fields are devoured by strangers. And the devastation of the land was a natural consequence of the invasion that they experienced. And when armies invade, they would plunder and steal and take anything that they wanted for their own sustenance. And whatever they didn't want, they destroyed. So many of us have in the last little while seen images probably on the news or online of the ongoing devastation in Ukraine at the hands of the Russians. And the carnage and the destruction is unfathomable to us. And we just continue to pray for all involved and all affected by this devastation. But perhaps those mental images fresh in our minds will help us understand what's happening at this point in the book of Isaiah. Crops were burned and destroyed, which threatened the very existence of God's people, even beyond the invasion as the very life cycle of humanity is affected when they can no longer feed themselves. So the crops are stripped and lay in waste. Smoke spirals into the sky. People scream and wail and livestock just rots in the fields. And the scene before us is one of utter devastation. And this all goes to show just the devastation and the desperation that God's people would have been experiencing. So let me jump into verse 8. This is a verse that that if you read it at face value, you may think, well, I have no idea what's happening. I don't, I don't understand what this means. And so this one has struck me as a little bit funny, maybe a little bit odd sometimes, but I just want to mention the, the daughter of Zion. Zion is the name for the mount on which Jerusalem is situated. It's accustomed or, or associated with the cosmic location from which the Lord reigns forever. But here in this situation, it's simply a reference to Jerusalem. The passage says, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter or like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. Now, those of you who grew up in church are probably thinking, well, Larry the cucumber? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Well, no, actually. <laughs> but these small huts or, or little shacks that are mentioned here, they're almost like little shanties um, that are built in a field so that a watchman could look out over the whole field and just make sure everything is okay. They're making sure that there's no predators coming in to take what's growing. They're making sure there's no robbers coming in to steal the produce. So as long as there's produce growing in the fields, the watchman is there in that little hut, just keeping watch, guarding the field. So the analogy here 
is that Jerusalem itself is portrayed as vacant and desolate. It's deserted. There's nothing left even worth protecting because the hut is empty. The huts have been abandoned. So this little reference to the cucumber, again, it's not Larry, although we do really like that guy. And it's not random either, although it may seem to be. Those of you who've maybe read uh, quite a bit in the Old Testament might remember a reference in the book of Numbers, everyone's favorite book, by the way. Back in the book of Numbers, earlier in the Old Testament, that is part of the Bible that sort of retells Israel's national history. And so it's telling the story about how God's people had been enslaved in Egypt. They lived in bondage for 400 years, and eventually they're able to escape, right, with the help of their leader, Moses. And when they escaped Egypt, there's a period of time where they're just wandering in the wilderness, waiting to that point in time that they can enter the promised land. Now, you would think, after they had been freed from bondage and freed from slavery, that they would have been grateful for their freedom. Well, there were probably moments of that. But unfortunately, it wasn't always the case. God's people grumbled and complained. And there was even a period in time in which they just said, well, actually, we want to go back to Egypt. Numbers chapter 11, verse 5 said, the sons of Israel said, give us meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. In a very real sense, Israel's looking back at the good old days in Egypt, when things were better for them, apparently. Their mouths are watering as they think back to, oh, all the delectable, delicious, wonderful, plentiful food that we used to have when we were Do you think maybe their memories are a little bit short? Do you think maybe they're remembering things not quite how they really? Do you remember when we were slaves and they fed us so well? That doesn't make any sense at all. But they're remembering this time. And so they have a very short collective memory. Because when they said this in numbers, they had just escaped brutal slavery in Egypt. And they were living in freedom. But they look back, and their memory is a little skewed. But now they've been attacked. The city is crumbling like a desolate wasteland with nothing left to protect or preserve. And so this reference to cucumbers is a reminder to God's people not to spend time pining for what God had brought them out of and for what they'd experienced in the past. Here's the thing, many of us have been tempted to look back at our own lives and remember the good old days. Haven't we all done that? I have. But we put on our rose-colored glasses and we look back and think, oh, things were just better back then. We think back to the things that that were good and, and maybe we want to return to that. We've forgotten that we once lived in Egypt and things were pretty terrible back then. 
We forget that we were worked to the bone by greedy slave drivers because right now we're just so focused on the cucumbers of the past. We do this in our family. Oh, if I could just go back to when my babies were small. We forget about all the nights that they kept us up. All the nights. We do this perhaps in our professional lives as well. Oh my, my life was so much better when I worked at that job. And we forget that the pay was pretty awful and the boss was really mean. But we think, oh, just remember how good it was back then in that season of life. And maybe sometimes we even do it in church life. None of you have done this, but other churches, you know. Oh, our church was so much better back when so-and-so was the pastor or when the music was different or when there were more people or when there was revival or when there was fill-in-the-blank. We do this. We do this all the time. So when we're reminded of the good old days, we can be tempted to want to go back, but we can't. And we need to be careful about idolizing those days as the Israelites did when they fondly remembered all the good things they had when they were slaves. The cucumbers might have been good, but you ate them with chains on your legs and whips on your backs. So perhaps those times weren't as good as we remember them to be. Perhaps it's not quite what we thought it was. But ultimately, the whole point here is this, that in reality, God's people don't have what they used to have back then. Why? Because they've pretty much lost everything. Now, we know that ultimately, God's people brought this punishment upon themselves. That's been established. They brought this suffering upon themselves. So it could be said that, well, you know, they got what was coming to them, didn't they? And maybe sometimes we even have a tendency to, to gloat and become a little self-righteous when we see other people falter or fall or, or mess up or land on hard times because, well, pff, they finally got what was coming to them. But that might not be the, might, the right mindset to have. God certainly could have looked at Israel and gloated and said, ha, you finally got what was coming to you. But that's not his response. Let me turn your attention to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. So again, let's remember the scene. Their fields are destroyed. They've been attacked. The, the fires of war are smoldering, and the Assyrian army looms large and has broken down their defenses. Their future looks precarious, their livelihood has been destroyed, and morale is at an all-time low. But God reminds his people about Sodom and Gomorrah, which was the city that was entirely destroyed for its wickedness in Genesis. But here, when it seems as though all is lost, we see this surprising element of hope. 
because we read that God left a few survivors in Jerusalem. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like much to you. Well, they've been all but destroyed. There's fires burning. They've lost. But here's what I want you to know. All throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, God's people fail over and over. They fall into idolatry. They fall into religious ritualism. They fall into social injustice. And they continue on in that trend towards unrighteousness and evil. And as the nature of God is entirely just, he would be well within his right to obliterate them entirely from the face of the earth. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't destroy them. He makes sure that there's something left for his people to build from, to start from, to grow from, and to continue from, even though those fields have been decimated and as the fires of war continue to burn, the earth holds those seeds in the ground which will allow the crops again to flourish. That is God's way. There is always something left. He makes sure there's always something left. He makes sure that we are never completely wiped out, that we never actually hit rock bottom, even though we have certainly felt that way. He makes sure of it. There's always enough left to scrounge it together and start over again. We don't deserve his mercy. We can't earn it at all. We never can. But there's always something left. Here's the thing. Merit says one thing, but mercy says another. We can't earn what God gives us. There is not a thing in the world that any one of us could do to merit the extravagant mercy that God has shown us. But God, in his great mercy, has seen fit to give every one of us a second chance. There's no one who's got not enough left to start over. If I could just be really blunt for a moment, and those of you who know me will say, well, Allison, have you ever done anything but be blunt? Fair. <laughs> it's probably true. Here's the thing. The last couple of years have been hard on a lot of us. Very difficult for a million different reasons. Mental health seems to be at an all-time low. Industries have been hit hard with the effects of COVID. Family life, education, and work, all of these things have felt the effects of the pandemic. People have gotten sick. People have died. And then there's the ongoing crisis in Ukraine that leaves the entire world feeling unsettled. The economy has sensed the ramifications of it in many, many ways. Sometimes we stand back and we just feel like, oh goodness, everything's out of control. I can't control a thing. It feels like everything is in a mess. And it is. And in the midst of all of that chaos, many of us, many of you, have experienced things in the last couple of years that have just taken the wind right out of your sails. And if I'm being really honest, I have been there too. 
Sometimes we pause and we step back and we feel as though we're just standing here watching the smoldering ruins of our lives. And it feels as though we've got nothing left. And even in local church life, sometimes, things can just be hard. But what I want you to hear that Isaiah reminds us is this. God has not abandoned us. He is not far off. He is not distant. He is right here with us. And we see this surprising element of of hope rising up such that when things seem absolutely impossible in our lives, in our families, in our church, there is always something left to hold on to. Always. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 echoes this sentiment when it says, because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. His compassions are new every morning. Amen? It doesn't matter how much you've lost. You will never be in a place where you don't have enough to start again. He always leaves something for us to scrounge together, pull together, and start over. So I want to challenge each of us as we let the words of Scripture really permeate our hearts to not dwell on what's in the rearview mirror. We don't want to dwell our attention on the things of the past and and the good old days or the things that are behind us. Rather, we look ahead to what God is doing. We look ahead to where he's leading us and we trust him in the process. And maybe if you are feeling like you've lost it all or things have been really tough or, you know, the bottom's just fallen out of it all, I just want you to know that he hasn't left you. He has not abandoned you. You are certainly not alone. And God is a God of preservation. And in his providential care for you, he'll make sure that the world can't steal everything from you. He's a God of second chances. But we have a responsibility, every one of us, to look to Scripture, to learn from His Word and think, what do I need to do to live into God's purposes for my life? My life. It's not just a matter of, you know, everything's going to go well if I pray it all away. No, sometimes things are just hard. But we understand that we're not in those hard things alone. God is a God of redemption. Amen? And he makes sure that we always have enough to start again. Will you stand with me as we pray? Just want to challenge you this week to think through those words of Scripture and the idea that even in spite of all the challenges of the world, in spite of all the difficulties that we face, in spite of the challenges in our families and in every other part of our lives, to know that God hasn't abandoned us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today as a people with great needs. Lord, in a room like this, there are many people who have situations and challenges and problems in their life that 
are outside of our control, people dealing with sickness and, and other health issues, people who are dealing with family challenges and work challenges and all sorts of issues. And Lord, we lay them at your feet. We lay them before you knowing that we do not go through any of those situations alone, but that you are with us in those valleys. And Lord, as we think through your word and as we continue to meditate upon it, I pray that you would make very real in our hearts and minds the truth that you have not abandoned us and that you are forever with us and that you are guiding us and continue to superintend our lives. And Lord, today as we leave this place and go about the rest of our day and our week, Lord, may we take time to encourage one another with the timeless truth that you are ever present and that you are a part of our lives and that we're never alone. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's been a good time to be with you today. Um, on that note, I would encourage you to take a couple of moments before you leave to greet one another, say hello to someone, and encourage someone. Amen. Thank you all.